to episode 22 of Logicast, the AWS news podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined today by my colleague, John, as always. Good all. How are you doing today, John? <laughs> I'm going to put that on my birth certificate. John, as always, good all. That's, that's now my name. I think it's as always has become uh, your middle name or middle names. So uh, I shall uh, from here on in refer to you as that. Uh, but uh, we're also joined today by yet another very special guest, Armelin Obingua from the Philippines. How are you doing today, Armelin? Yeah, definitely doing great. Yeah, thank you so much for this invitation to be here. You're welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself, Armelin, about what you do for a living, etc. Oh, yeah. All right. So I'm Armelin. Um, yeah, I'm from the Philippines and I'm also an AWS community builder uh, under the data category. And I'm also working in a space of ML and AI. So definitely something related to uh, those GPT coming in. Yeah, we're really working on right now. Um, aside from that, I'm also trying to co-found a non-profit organization that's more like, um, you know, pushing forward the responsible AI. So that's, that's a definitely what I do aside from, you know, events and um, probably like research about ML. So. Sounds good. So you're at the bleeding edge with generative AI and all of that, yeah. uh, those buzzwords that uh, are out there in the industry right now. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we've got anything in our uh, news selection about that today, but maybe we can have a slight segue into some uh, generative AI or something as the conversation pans out. So um, anyway, uh, if uh, you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that uh, once a week um, I collate and circulate uh, an AWS News Roundup newsletter um, where I scour the web um, for news about AWS. And then once a week in the podcast, we select a subset of the articles from the News Roundup that we'd like to talk about in more detail. So we've got uh, five such articles this week uh, that we'd like to talk about. And the first one is from our friends at The Register. Not one of their uh, most controversial headlines, I have to say, but uh, uh, interesting nonetheless. Um, this article is entitled AWS Teases Mysterious Mil-Spec Snowblade Server. So uh, we seem to be hearing lots about the Snow family recently. I'm sure we've spoken about snowballs and snowball edges and things uh, quite a bit on recent episodes of the podcast. Uh, but now uh, we're hearing about the snow blade. So what can you tell me about the snow blade, John? I think you're right. I think this is a th the third podcast in a row we've had a snow something. So I don't know what's going on there. And it's springtime. It's not even winter. So lots of snow in springtime, which is very unusual. Yeah. I mean, this is England. It, it did, it did um, snow in April once. Um, but yeah, on message, we're not weather forecasters. Um, so this is an interesting one. As you say, it's not a controversial headline, which is a bit weird for Elreg, but I think this has come from one of their many spies in one of the networks because they seem to have lots of them. Yes, okay, this is this is an announcement and they haven't really been able to get lots of detail about it because it's talking about military hardware and, and not in the form that will get you banned on various social media. This is actual hardware that the military uses for computing cool that's that fighter jet in the corner neatly sidestepped um this does look quite cool they're calling it a snow blade which is weird because it's kind of like a blade form factor but it's only a half a rack wide so again if you haven't read the article for the listeners it's talking about a snowball type device that sits in a 5u blade chassis in a rack so in theory you could get two of them in in 
in a five year space. You can get two of them next to each other with 208 vCPUs and as much RAM as you can shake a really big stick at. And the idea being it will run, you know, things that snowball devices run. It'll run EC2, IAM, CloudTrail, Greengrass, blah, 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 in what they refer to as constrained environments be that power network what have you so that they can run these ridiculous compute workloads in the middle of a desert somewhere where no one officially is but everyone but there's a base somewhere i think that's kind of the purpose of this it's quite interesting um just as a, as a piece of hardware the fact that it's gone military first kind of makes sense it's where the money is particularly in the states but i'd like to see this sort of thing coming down into civilian land where you can put it on like an oil rig because that would be really cool what are your thoughts on this one, Armelin? Anything to add? Yeah, I think it's, it's actually an interesting article. Um, and I, I see that, you know, the more we scale, um, you know, possible the innovations that we have in the technology space. And uh, the way this kind of like a new thing, uh, especially in the A-level side. So um, I guess for the listeners, uh, they would still have to, you know, keep themselves uh, updated for this one because me myself have you know, first time heard this, and then I got my mind blown up. And I probably think it, it just would be like, um, how this is going to be working, especially when people are going to use it for their own, you know, uh, business sites or a lot of things. So yeah, I, I think that's something that probably like, people will look forward. And I guess the best practices to actually use this, you know, certain one. So yeah, it's definitely what I thought of. And uh, I noticed that you can run SageMaker on it. So you could be doing some uh, machine learning and AI um, in the desert yeah, or yeah. Where you have, wherever it is that you happen to be uh, in yeah, battle, yeah. I guess. Um, I just hope it works over satellite internet because I can't imagine there's going to be much broadband in these uh, yeah, yeah. zones. Um, but, um, yeah, it's uh, definitely one of those things that uh, the more you know about it, the more likely you are to be killed, I think, because I did try poking around myself. I think the, you've uh, just got us banned now. Website. Well done. <laughs> From where? Uh, I, I think the YouTube doesn't like that word. I think you've got us banned. Oh, the uh, the K word? <laughs> yes. Oh, not Carl. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, maybe I'll just get auto bleeped and hopefully not banned. But, uh, you know, we do distribute on other channels other than YouTube. Um, but uh, no, it is really interesting. And uh, like you said, John, uh, and like the article says, um, military first. But it'd be interesting to see what other applications uh, there might be for this. You mentioned oil rigs, but I guess oil, other exploration sites and uh, archaeological digs and that kind of thing you know, could all potentially make use of this technology. So uh, really good to see this kind of edge computing family um growing so uh, anyway let's move on uh, to the next article we've got this week uh, which is an article on the aws storage blog um which is about reducing aws key management service costs by up to 99 percent with s3 bucket keys now i don't think this is uh, anything particularly new um although the blog post is uh, relatively new um so it's just highlighting uh, some features that are already available within S3. Uh, but John, tell us a bit more about um, how how people could potentially reduce their AWS key management costs uh, with S3 bucket keys. Yeah, sure. This one's a bit more terrestrial than the last article, but also a bit more <laughs> concrete because the other one was a bit speculative. So this is a lot more important now than it used to be because it used to be that you didn't have to encrypt S3. 
right now s3 buckets are encrypted from day one by default using either s3 uh, sse s3 or sse kms i'm using the acronyms in case anyone's studying for their test those are the correct acronyms however if you're using a kms key or to be honest even um an s3 provided key but realistically a kms key there are costs for going out to kms and retrieving the key so that you can then decrypt things right Yes, it caches a little bit, but realistically, it's one request per thing that you want to go and get, be that a file, a folder, a lot of folders, whatever. It's kind of one um, request per. Now, that's not cheap. That's, sorry. That's quite cheap on a on a one-to-one -one basis. So if you're just doing one file, you're not going to notice. But if you're pulling 10,000, 100,000, a million files out of an S3 bucket, which you may very well be doing, those costs will start to get very expensive very quickly because you will exhaust any free tiers that are there. I don't think there is any. And you will start to notice these charges at scale. Right. What are S3 bucket keys and how does that help? S3 bucket keys are basically caching the key locally so that when I say locally, it means kind of within the S3 service. It's not like on your laptop. So locally here means locally to the bucket. So what that basically means is that a time-limited key is generated by KMS and S3 uses that. Rather than going all the way off to KMS to get the key to come back again, you get like a temporary key generated from the original key, and it means that you're not going out to KMS anywhere near as much, and you're still getting all the same security benefits, because this local key is time limited and it expires after a while. That's why it's saving 99%, because it's, you know, you're still going to KMS occasionally. There's a few services that you know, sorry, there's a few uh, things you need to enable in the bucket policy. So, um, is bucket policy or the iron policy? Iron policy. Um, so that that key um, can work with kind of the bucket and all that kind of thing. But realistically, if you're creating the bucket through the console, there's a little checkbox that says enable bucket keys. You hit that and it does it all for you. Obviously, we, we encourage people to use uh, Terraform and CloudFormation and infrastructure as code in whatever format that might be. So you just need to be aware that you need to enable that those permissions. Otherwise, it will just sort of start breaking. You get these weird, annoying error messages. There's a couple of other bits as well that you can do, again, in the article so that um, you can force things to go through that process through things like bucket policies and stuff. So you can deny that aren't SSE KMS, which just enforces the encryption at another level. And it kind of tells you how to go 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 about doing all of that and doing it in a multi-tenancy environment where you've got lots of different customers with their own keys and all that kind of thing, because that's it's not simple, but generally worth doing absolutely worth doing because these charges could get quite expensive quite quickly at scale what are your thoughts on this armalyn anything to add there yeah i think yeah i i think john covered it all but i says uh for the people probably using it for like multiple projects especially an organization i guess managing the cost would really be the important thing um like for example when we they handle a lot of you know probably like data working in it it's it's definitely one of the like probably the problem but now that we see this another like feature is being added and simply like you can now monitor everything like you know could save more so i think um you know in this we can use probably like those people who are like you know trying to optimize everything for their scalability so it's probably like something to that to look forward cool so yeah, cost optimization is a huge, uh, or cloud optimization 
in general is a is a huge uh, area of focus at the moment, getting a lot of coverage in the press, which is a neat segue into our next article, uh, which is an article on InfoWorld uh, about what's missing in your cloud optimization projects. Now, before we get into this one, I have to say I read it and I thought it was all fairly basic stuff. Um, just kind of bread and butter stuff. Um, but sometimes it's good, I guess, to go back to basics uh, and remind ourselves that there are potentially um, some very simple things that we ought to be looking at um, from an optimization perspective, uh, just to keep those costs under control. So given that John covered everything last time, Armelin, I'm going to let yeah. you go first this time. Uh, so uh, yeah, give, give you an opportunity to, to talk to this article and, and hear some more of your thoughts around uh, cloud optimization. Yeah, I think one of the, I think this also like speaks on my experience as well. Like whenever we work on a project, it's simply like the only question that we always ask at the end is like, how can we op optimize it? And now that this article really showed like, okay, we need to always optimize everything, especially now that we have this, you know, a lot of developments and also in the space of generative AI, we have to, you know, make sure that everything is like, you know, algorithm, the costs and all. So I guess maybe maybe like related to this i guess it's it's more like um you know if you're going to develop something in the cloud especially in the aws always make sure to prioritize the optimization which is something that offers um with aws you know features and all and i think this is only the priority right now since a lot of um you know innovations and technology are you know coming up forward so yeah and what about what are your thoughts john do you want to cover the basics here yeah, yeah. I think as as professionals, as people with various certifications and have been doing this for X number of years, we can quite often forget that there are people out there that don't have that level of experience. A level of experience. I keep tripping over my words today. Don't know what's going on. It's, it's the heat. It's definitely the heat. Um, so yeah, we can quite easily forget that there are people out there that are new to cloud. I mean, you and I try to go to local events and help people with that sort of thing, Carl. But yeah. There are a lot of people out there that are still new to this, even though it's been around for 10 odd years now. And it's important, I think, to keep restating the basics because every day there's going to be someone that's not come across it before. So you, you can quite rightly say it's a very basic article. And it is because it's talking about auto scaling. It's talking about right sizing. It's talking about reserved instances and savings plans and spot instances and picking the right storage mechanism, be that EBS or EFS or S3. And the article itself actually says this at the bottom. I'm going to quote it verbatim here. It's, None of these are earth shattering suggestions. They are fairly simple ones that can be leveraged now and are proven to bring value. And that's absolutely spot on. They are. Sort your auto-scaling, sort your reservations out, sort your storage patterns out, and you can probably take a good third off of your bill overall. And we see this as a business time and time and time and time and time again with our customers where we'll go and do a FinOps piece of work for them, be that as part of the managed service or as a separate engagement, and it'll be reservations, unused volumes, why are you using EFS where you could be using EBS? Is there a reason for this? Lots of snapshots that you aren't cleaning up, so on and so on and so on. And at the end of the day, everyone just likes having money rather than giving it to somebody else where you don't need to. So absolutely worth restating the basics again. Yeah, I think it talks to a lot of the low-hanging fruit, but it's not, you know, as you say, this is something we're doing day in, day out um, for our customers but it's a moving feast. Um, you know, the the opportunities for optimization are changing all the time. So whereas three or four years ago, the primary uh, purchase plans were all around reserved instances. 
Uh, now, of course, AWS are pushing things much more like compute savings plans and EC2 savings plans, et cetera. So it's understanding all of that and what's best uh, for, for your particular use case. Of course, you've also got things like uh, Graviton um, CPUs that um, AWS are pushing their own um, custom manufactured silicon, uh, which gives a much better price performance ratio than uh, Intel based uh, silicon. Um, so there's lots of opportunities to move over to uh, Graviton based either EC2 instances or other um, PaaS services uh, like um, RDS, Lambda, et cetera, running on Graviton uh, to optimize costs that way. So, so it is a moving feast. So whilst, uh, you know, this, this article does kind of pick off some of the, the more, what we might think of as some of the more obvious low-hanging fruit, um, that, you know, there's lots of other optimization opportunities in there as well, uh, which are changing on a, on a fairly regular basis as things tend to do with, um, with AWS. I mean, how, how is this in the world of kind of data and, and machine learning, Armelin? Um, you know, what are, the, what are the sort of optimization opportunities there? Are they any different? Are they the same? What do, you know, what do you tend to find in the projects you're involved in? Yeah, I think it always depends on how, like, what's the use case? So that's why you mentioned it. So that's when we're, every time we work on a lot of, you know, use cases, it always depends on, you know, how large your data would be when you put it into the cloud and what the customer would be expecting to see, especially in the side of optimization. And sometimes we, we do handle like, you know, probably like um, the costs also. So I think it depends on what you want to try to deliver for your clients and then what they could offer as well in terms of, you know, the, the costs and all the stuff like in, in AWS. But now that we see that this is one of the priority of AWS to always keep it updated, especially now that it's everything is moving forward inside of the machine learning and in the data world. So it's definitely one. Yeah, I think one of the key things with data is selecting the right storage platform and the right storage tier. I think we've spoken about this before on the podcast, but particularly with things like S3, we spoke about S3 um, in, in the previous article. Um, and uh, obviously there are lots of different tiers of S3. Um, what you tend to find is most people have just put all of their data on the standard tier, which is of course the most expensive, but if the data is not being accessed regularly, then that's not the most cost-effective place for it to be. Um, so um, yeah, lots of lots of optimization opportunities around storage as well. In fact, I was just doing some uh, monthly service reports for some of our customers today, and uh, I noticed that uh, in, in, in AWS backup that some customers had backups which are set to never be archived to cold storage and i thought hmm, perhaps there's an optimization opportunity there maybe some of those backups should be going to cold storage uh, if they're going to be looked at so you know lots of uh, lots of little tips and tricks some you know some um low-hanging fruit which are going to generate huge savings like john said up to a third off your cloud bill once you've done that then uh, you know a lot of the other optimization opportunities are going to generate much lower uh, savings um but uh look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves, as we say in the UK. I'm sure there were similar sayings about dollars or uh, Philippine pesos or whatever currency uh, you might choose to uh, to pay for your cloud in. But uh, yeah, those, those small marginal gains do all add up over time. Um, so let's move on from the world of uh, cloud optimization. 
and into the world of cloud training. Um, so we've got an article from the AWS Training and Certification blog, um, which has got a, quite a long title. So let's see if I can uh, get this one out without uh, tripping over myself. Uh, this, this article is entitled 10 Tips to Prepare Simultaneously for AWS Certified Cloud Practitioner and AWS Certified Solutions Architect Associate exams. Um, so of course, Cloud Practitioner and uh, Solutions Architect Associate um, often uh, are the first two sort of proper certifications that many uh, AWS practitioners will, will go for. Um, Cloud Practitioner is a more kind of generic um, for anybody involved in cloud. It's not particularly technical, or it does touch on some technical aspects of cloud, but it looks a, a lot at uh, cloud economics, the business case for cloud uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, and then of course, Solutions Architect Associate does go a little bit more into the tech, doesn't go particularly deep, but it covers off a lot of the kind of core infrastructure services like EC2, RDS, basics around DNS, networking, um, putting VPC networks together, et cetera. Um, so often people will start with Cloud Practitioner and then move on to Solutions Architect Associate next. Certainly that was the path that I took um, on my AWS certification journey. Um, but uh, this one talking about uh, doing them both together. So um, Armelin, I'm not sure uh, where, where you're at on your uh, certification journey. Have you done these uh, the Cloud Practitioner and Solutions Architect Associate? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's nice that, you know, uh, it's the recommended to start off, especially for those people who would be using AWS. So I probably would say that, you know, a lot of, you know, reading on the documentation side, especially when you're trying to, you know, review all the stuff and, you know, take this certification. So probably if you can read as much as possible, those um, documentation that would be helpful. And if you know the product itself, like, for example, you've been using, you know, AWS and then, you know, the features and all, a lot of it, I think it would be a plus, especially those who are going to be taking this practitioner and also the um, solution architect. It would be easy if you have this experience. But if not, then it would be better to, you know, use it uh, the time to give like a hands-on um, experience on how to use it, especially those features. It, it will cover on probably on the certification exam as well. And if you can probably like read as much as like those uh, frequently asked questions, I this is also, you know, my one thing that useful for me. Like when I read articles, a lot of like, for example, this one, the AWS news and stuff. So this is also one of the things that you could um, do aside from, you know, having it post. And I think another one is to make sure that you always, you know, keep yourself ready to a lot of, you know, concepts, you know, especially for the first time, we're just going to taking this. So expect a lot of, you know, tactical stuff, you know, but if you get the hands-on, that would be probably easy for, for you and if you want to take the post. But I would suggest to start off with the cloud practitioner just to give general idea about everything in the AWS side. And that if you are like good enough with it, then they just go to uh, the solution architect. So not you know, get overwhelmed with this thing. So that's probably my, my tip for those people who would be trying to out. Yeah. Before we ask John for his opinion, um, I, I'm mm -hmm. not sure if it was last week that we discussed this, John, but I'm going to ask Armelin on her preference. Um, do you prefer to go to a testing center or do the exams at home? I think I, I would love to do the testing center because sometimes our internet is kind of like, you know, it, it, I think it depends on the location of the person. So if you're located to like, a little bit the internet is kind of you know on and off so maybe take the you know uh the on-site 
But if you prefer, like, okay, you have like good connection, everything, everything is set up, no distractions, or all, you can do so these uh, online uh, way to exam. But it always depends on, um, you know, your preferences. Um, but it you should always depend on that because sometimes if your internet connection is kind of bit on enough, that would probably like makes it more complicated to take the exam. But yeah, I, I think that that's definitely one. Um, here in the Philippines, when you do like the onsite. It's, it's very strict, so expect that uh, you have to be prepared. Everything is like, you know, uh, the documents that you need to pass on, uh, what you bring should always be with you because that's the, also the blocker. So make sure to prepare everything before your examination so that everything goes well. So I think that's, that's something that people should expect. So, yeah. Sure. And uh, so, John, I know you've done both of these. Um, mm. Oh, actually not in that order no, yeah. i have i have i didn't do them in this order though um i did the solutions architect associate years ago now and it's expired and i don't hold it anymore and then i did the dev associate six months back and then i did ccp i think just because i think we needed it for partner levels or some such so i just kind of went okay i've been doing the, i'll just go do do the exam because it's it's not a humble brag. It's a I can just walk in and pass the test. It's because I've been doing this for a long time. But yes, I, I have passed both of these. Um, it's interesting that they say these two at the same time. And it does make sense because they're quite similar exams. Solutions Architect is definitely harder because it's the associate level, not the foundation level, as AWS referred to them. But I don't remember anything from my CCP that would have felt out of place on the associate exam you know easier sure simpler question fine but topic wise i don't remember anything that i'd have felt was that's really weird that's why is this on it on the no it kind of it, it made sense so if you're going to do two exams at the same time this is quite a good kind of pair to do the other thing i wanted to call out from this one shout out zarina by the way is um because we were at that event a few months ago now and, and one of our uh, other CB colleagues was talking about exams and certification pathways and all the rest of it. And the CCP is a good exam to take as a as a confidence builder because it's it's something that if you're 80, 70, 80% of the way through the training for the uh, solutions architect, you could probably do quite well with the CCP. So it's good for a confidence builder as well. So I'm just going to go through some of the tips, download the exam guides. Is that something you guys have done? Do you read the exam guides or do you just kind of jump straight in? Um, I haven't. I will. Again, off the back of that meetup that we were at a couple of um, months ago now, because I didn't realize that not all the uh, questions were marked because it's a 65 question test and only 50 of them were worth any points. And I didn't know that, but that's in the guide. I just never bothered to read it. The problem is you don't know which ones they are. No, so. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, sign up for AWS Skill Builder. I think that's a good tip because there is a lot of free training. Um, there's also a lot of paid training out there that you can go for. And some of it costs very little. Uh, but uh, the AWS Skill Builder library is, uh, you know, being updated on a regular basis. You probably find most things in there free of charge. Uh, that you need to pass the course. What uh, what training did you use, Armelin, to to get your certs? I think I actually started with Cloud Academy. Uh, this is one we we really you know recommend here, especially for those who feel like they really don't know like how to get started in AWS. So you can also sign up as well on you know in parallel to this the skill builders. You can have both if you wanted to really master everything about this 
you know, the general and all the stuff, you know, uh, the foundations, definitely take the post. And I guess uh, one good thing about the Cloud Academy is that it has this work, uh, you know, you can try it, like, for example, this um, hands-on experience as well. Like, you can get, like, okay, how to, you know, set this up. Then there's, like, guide. So I guess that really works for people who are, like, transitioning to using AWS or, like, cloud services, specifically AWS. So that's one thing that you can use for. Um, I think XM Guide, I, I really don't usually use it, like, most of the time. Because sometimes, the, you know, the guy doesn't have the questions, you know, in some exams. So, yeah, you gotta, gotta experience it first so that you get the confidence that you can really nail those certification yeah yeah for sure hands-on experience is important um really helped me to understand how everything fits together um and then uh, you mentioned questions there but that was the other tip i wanted to kind of highlight from this was complete free sample questions um or there are other sources of paid sample questions um but uh you know sample questions are a really great way to understand what you're going to get uh, when you sit down for that exam what the structure of the question is what the structure of the answers are uh, because it's important to understand how that works because uh, that can really give you a, a, a strong head start in the exam so um, having said that and I think I've said this before um, certainly for some of my um, associate and professional level certifications I never passed a sample test. <laughs> I always failed them, uh, but I've never failed an actual exam. So uh, I think, uh, you know, don't be disheartened if you're not passing the um, sample tests, because actually I think they're harder and, and perhaps also you don't focus on them as much because you're not actually in exam conditions. But uh, yeah, I never managed to achieve the pass mark on a sample test, um, but I've never failed a real one. So Yeah, I clocked that the other day, actually. I realized I was trying to pass the... DevOps Pro practice tests in about 30 or 40 minutes when it's a three hour exam. So it's yeah. like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Right then. You're not giving it the time. No. You're not giving it the time it deserves. Whereas if you've driven to a test center and you know you're going to be there for three hours, you're going to focus purely on that. You've got no distractions. Um, you know, there's no phone there. There's no uh, second screen or anything like that. So, um, yeah, definitely different when you're in exam conditions. Hmm. Anyway, um, conscious of time, just uh, let's, let's touch on our last article, uh, which is also about training um and this one again from the aws training and certification blog um is about building your serverless knowledge um, and earning digital badges so um, lots of digital badges available um in the um uh, aws training arena um now these are not quite as um they don't hold quite as much weight i guess as a proper aws certification um, but uh, you know still badges that can be displayed to demonstrate your learning nonetheless so what, what are your thoughts on these john i only re i didn't really want to talk about the badges so much because my opinion is, is very much the same as yours it's okay it's a proof that you've done this but it's probably not the same as a full-on exam um it's definitely nice to see that AWS are drawing attention specifically to serverless training. And they do talk about the server, uh, certified developer associate certification, and that's got a relatively high serverless content. About 30% of the exam is about serverless services. Um, but what I would like to see, that's why I picked this, because I wanted to say this, is I would like to see a serverless specialty exam. Maybe there's one coming down the pipe, maybe not don't know but in the same way that there's AIML, uh, database security networking i'd like to see a serverless specialty exam come down the pipe too yeah fair enough what about yourself armin have you done any of these digital badges outside of the kind of main certifications 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's also good, especially for people like, you know, starting out. I guess digital badges really, you know, gave a, um, confidence for them. But I really suggest to really study different, you know, serverless architecture. Um, don't just rely on, you know, the idea that you get this digital badge and that you don't get the hands-on experience. So it's better to, yes, have this digital badge, to still continue having this, um, you know, knowledge on the actual, since I guess it's it's pretty covered as well on the certification that a lot of, you know, serverless topics and kind of sometimes it doesn't cover everything on the digital badges. So I think it would be better to, to be prepared for that. But um, I guess it's also one that, you know, people want to showcase that they started to finish this one. And so they can give, it's kind of like, um, like a game where you can just go level one and then go here and then you might notice that okay, I, I gotta go to the certification and getting more um, the knowledge itself. But yeah, I think it's it's nice for for those first timers. I think, but for those who are like experienced ready, I think you would go directly to the certification without having this digital badges. So yeah, it's it's definitely after it. Yeah, I must confess, I've never done any of the digital badges myself, but I can see how it could be a nice confidence booster if you've never done an exam, uh, never done a certification and, and want to work towards it. So, yeah, could potentially be a good place to start. Um, but uh, this is also a good place to finish um, because uh, we've reached the end of our time. Um, so uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, thank you uh, again for joining us today, Armelin, all the way from the Philippines. It's been really great to uh, have you on and hear your opinions uh, on, on these articles. Uh, and thanks uh, thanks again, John, as always, good all. Uh, I'm sure you'll be back again for more next week. So uh, that was uh, Season 2, Episode 22 of Logicast. Uh, you can find us on all major podcast distribution platforms, um, iTunes, uh, Amazon, Spotify, YouTube, etc. Um, maybe, so- maybe YouTube. <laughs> Oh, it should be it should be on YouTube. Well, yeah, may, maybe not. Maybe I'm going to get filtered. Um, but you'll, hopefully you'll find us on all of the others. Um, so uh, thanks again for listening, and uh, we will see you again next time. <laughs>